It's the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Green, gardening, and environment radio. Flavored with a dash of humor. Welcome to intelligent, irreverent talk about plants and the planet they grow on. Your questions, comments, and participation are always welcome on Facebook and Instagram at The Mike Novak Show and at Mike Now on Twitter. Good planets are hard to find. Temperate zones and tropic climes. And true currents and thriving seas. Wind blowing through breathing trees. Strong ozone and safe sunshine. Well, good planets are hard to find. Good planets are in the main. Brought to you by Bartlett Tree Experts. Every tree needs a champion. Go to Bartlett.com. And here they are, Peggy Malecki and Mike Nova. Good planets are in the Right. And Happy New Year. Okay, happy, happy New Year. year. Uh, this Woo-hoo. is our first, I know, our first time out of the gate in the new, yeah, wait, where's my, where, it's here. And Amos, Amos gets the, the first viewer award. The what? Followed oh. by Bruce. Followed by Dan Costa. Hey, Happy New Year, guys. Oh, wait, here we are. Just wanted one of these. All right. And I uh, hope everybody had a, yeah. a really good holiday. Peggy and I were talking before the show. Our our sidewalks are completely glazed over with ice. It is nasty out there. So that means I'm going to run out there with some product of some kind, which I hate doing. I've I've actually it's it's weird. I've yelled at my neighbors in the past. Uh, people who are being good Samaritans, <laughs> and they go out and. They, I, I had a twice last year. I think in the within a couple of days of each other because we we had a period where we were getting snow every day. I had a neighbor come out and shovel my walk, which I appreciate. Thank you. I'll do it. But if if they get out there with their machine because I don't have a machine, and uh, and they shovel, and then they start throwing salt down. And a couple of times I ran out the front door like a madman, saying, "No, no, no, no salt, no salt, no salt." Um, <laughs> Yeah, and, and uh, Mommy, that man? I know, and I and I feel terrible that I have to do that. But it's the same thing with the uh, people who have lights on uh, in the neighborhood. I say, could you could you bring those lights down, please? I know you think you're stopping no, crime. We won't talk about who those people are. No. no, but they're nice people, and they just have mm-hmm. the lights are too bright. It, I, you or know? that are out spraying their lawn with um, nasty chemicals. Well, the. The guy, we did have a chat with a guy a couple of doors down. We were growing when my neighbor died, and we were growing uh, in your dead neighbor's yard. In my, growing vegetables in my dead neighbor's yard, um, the guy next to her uh, did some spraying one year because he was trying to get rid of morning glories, and of course uh, that uh, glyphosate drifted into her backyard and uh, whacked our tomatoes. And we had mm-hmm. a little chat with him and said, you know. You can't do that. Uh, it's not. It's not going to work very well, especially on a windy day. And yep. so, um, he yeah. he listened. It was it was remarkable. He, then he took a tarp and put it on 
the, and, and the morning glories were everywhere because the guy who had owned that house before had planted morning glories, which is insane. Um, and they took over the entire yard. Uh, and they still are in the neighborhood. You can't get rid of them. There's no way to ever, ever get rid of them. They're, they're pretty for half a day. Um, yeah, uh, and they're and and I do love the blooms, but they will strangle everything in sight. So, all right. So uh, on today's show, since it's a new year and it's three degrees outside, or will be, and there's ice on the sidewalks, we have to talk gardening, right? Uh-huh. Is it isn't isn't that the way it works? Um, we will do that in the first part of the show, as I mentioned. Um, we will also have meteorologist Rick DeMaio on, and then in between uh, that, Peggy and I have some environmental stories, uh, and, and part of what we'll talk about is using salt. Uh, we've done that. I was looking uh, at a show about a year ago. We had an expert on to talk about uh, how dangerous it is and, and what salt is doing to our waterways. Um, there's a, a Bell Bowl Prairie update we're going to preview some of the shows uh coming up in the future guess what in a couple of weeks uh doug tallamy is going to be back on the program uh i'm i'm so excited about that and he actually will be talking with us about bell bull prairie uh and um you know he doesn't and other similar and other right uh issues that have come to his attention. So uh, yeah. it's not the only place in the world that is in danger of being paved over, being bulldozed. Like um, Skokie with the giant Pez dispenser. Oh, yes. my gosh. Talk we will talk that. about the, the giant Pez dispenser in Skokie. It's a car. Uh, what or is they that? Call? The Audi dispenser. Uh, yeah. Uh, dispenser. It's, dispenser. It's, it's one of those car things where they, they dispense cars from a, how mm-hmm. many stories? Eight, nine-story thing and it's lit up way too many and it's and it's basically if you put it near uh, a forest preserve it's going to be a magnet for birds to fly right into the windows um and in its infinite mm-hmm. wisdom the uh, the village of skokie wants to put that up uh, what do they call i was going to allow it to go carvana carvana that was it carvana it wants to do that and they they're they had a commission just say like five to one vote yeah let's do that why not so they have to have the full council vote, and we'll talk about that too. So, but before we do that, uh, let's talk some gardening here. So let's bring in our guests. Yeah. Mary Kate Mackey is on your left lower screen, and Kathleen Norris Brenzel is on your right lower screen, and they are the authors of this book, "The Healthy Garden: <laughs> Simple Steps for a Greener World." Oh no, no, see, it's we, we're all about product placement here. Um, the Mike Novak show with Peggy Malecki. Um, product placement. Yeah. Product placement. <laughs> Wherever. Hi there. Uh, welcome to the show. Uh, we appreciate having you both on, and, and they're left coasters, so they are dealing with um, very early times right now. It's uh, it's 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 frightfully oh, yeah. early. Yeah, right. Right. And it's dark out there. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't it, Kathy? Dark here, too. Yeah, that was going to be the plan. One of you was going to have the door open to the garden, but it's just so dark. There's I no... was. Okay, <laughs> Kathleen. Uh, Kathleen, where do you live? I live in Menlo Park, which is uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Mary-Kate, you're near... And U- I'm Eugene, Oregon. Uh, I'm actually outside of Eugene, and I should have played the song uh, uh, Eugene, that one. Remember yeah, that from the yeah. 70s? Okay. <laughs> yep. Um, 
bad enough the first time. I know it was pretty pretty dumb song. Hung out with Bob Collins too much. Sorry. That's that's right. That's right. Bob Collins used to play that all the time. Um, and uh, so I, I I have a confession to make um, to both of you. And if you read my blog post, you you saw the confession. But that is I. I have a history with both of you, not just because Mary Kate was on our program several years ago when we got invaded by garden writers uh, who had come to town. Uh, I called it. It was uh, an infestation of garden writers on our program. (laughs) Yes. And um, uh, but long, long before that, back when I was just starting to garden, when my Kathleen, Kathleen Thompson and I were just starting to garden. Our go-to book was the Sunset Western Garden book. All right. Now, how we got a hold of a Western Garden book, I don't know. Uh, But this was before you guys even did the National Garden book. We had the Western Garden book. I think I got it when when you lived out when you had your home out in Washington. That's it. I think that's what happened. I think we got it when we we had a a vacation home on uh, the Olympic Peninsula of Washington State. and I knew a lot about the plants out there, and I didn't know anything about the plants in the Midwest. Um, and that prompted me to become a master gardener here uh, in Chicago, in Illinois. Uh, but the Western Garden book, and I looked for it yesterday. Kathleen said, oh, is it still around? I said, I can't find it. I had, I, said, I have two copies of the National Garden book that Sunset did. But everything we did came through that book. I learned all about gardening via the uh, Sunset Western Garden book. And I can't tell you how wonderful that book is. And then to find the woman, Kathleen was editor of that book for a long time. Uh, Mary Kate was a contributor. Uh, and to have you guys on the show, the, you are you are the origins of my gardening life right here in person. So uh, I just... Great. I just want to thank you. Um, I'm, I'm sure you have people tell you this all the time, but that book, if it, if if a plant, if I couldn't find a plant in that book, it wasn't worth growing. Is the way I felt about it, which is <laughs> not exactly true. But um, there were actually that and a couple of other books that I had. You know, before the days of the internet, before having a cell phone where you could just look up anything instantly, you had to drag the book out to the yard. Uh, or or sit down with it uh, indoors and read about plants. Um, that was such a fabulous book. And I picked up the, um, then then after that, you guys said, okay, we'll do, uh, an, I think you said then we'll do a national one. And I think you, you, did, uh, you did a Midwest version of it. Kathleen, did you do that as well? Yes, we did. Yes, we did. Um, and um, I didn't like the national as good as the Western. The Western was the one, that was, that was my Bible. That was the Bible, and uh, the the one I, uh, that Kathleen and I loved so much. Um, yeah, it was your entry door to gardening. Yeah, it, it, right, and uh, it, it had so much good information and laid out so well. Uh, all I can say is thank you, Kathleen, for uh, those years when that was my go-to book. Well, and I would thank my great teams, including Mary Kate, for helping me <laughs> make that book so indispensable. It it was just wonderful. So that's that's where we start. Um, and so it doesn't surprise me then that two of you have teamed up to uh, to do 
your latest book, The Healthy Garden. Um, and um, Mary-Kate, tell me how that happened. Well, actually, it, it's interesting. We first teamed up for a little book that we did, Sunset Secret Gardens, which was 2006, I guess. And then uh, fairly recently, um, I was working on a book proposal for something I was calling the Gathering of Gardeners, which was mm-hmm. uh, information from a whole bunch of different sources. That's what I wanted to do. And uh, basically a problem-solving book. And then uh, Kathleen came to me and said, I want to do a book on healthy gardening, which, of course, you know, yeah, how could you say no to that? That's pretty good. So we combined uh, the two ideas into one book. So The Healthy Garden has whole sections on healthy garden, healthy you, healthy planet. And then it has these features of 20 of, uh, I mean, we could have had 80 uh, if we'd had more room in the book, Uh, gardening experts talking about uh, different aspects of gardening and problem solving. Uh, and I just, you made me realize, and I just looked at the book uh, and I, and I looked at my blog and I called it in, in the blog, healthy world, not healthy planet. So I will go back and fix that after the show. Uh, which, simple steps for a greener world. Um, yes. Well, I, but, but she's talking about the three different uh, yeah. uh, parts of the book. Um, right. And it's, it's healthy garden, healthy you, which is how your garden helps you become healthier. And then how you help the planet become healthier. Yeah. And that's been yes. sort of the message of this show uh, forever pretty much is, yeah, you can make a difference. You really can in, in your own backyard. Um, so uh, I love the idea of, of you going to talk to all of these different gardeners and a number of them have been on our show. Um, Melinda Myers is kind of a regular yeah. here because yeah. she's just down the road in uh, Milwaukee. Uh, Joe Lample has been on the show, other, otherwise known as Joe Gardner. Um, Teresa Spate, um, has been on our program. In fact, you made me realize I need to bring her back. You you talk to people like Lamanda Joy in Chicago with the Peterson Garden Project, who is mm-hmm. have been on the show many times. Um, so people uh, in the Midwest will recognize a lot of these names. Uh, and uh, even though you go all over the the country, um, uh, Kathleen, what was that like during the? Uh, pandemic trying to put this garden together because i imagine you didn't actually visit these gardens uh, in person or have you seen some of these gardens in person i we've i've seen a lot of them and i'm sure mary kate has seen a lot of them too but um to your answer during the pandemic it was really eye-opening in terms of gardening because um one of the biggest nurseries in the west coast rogers garden center in southern california um was absolutely swamped with people that were streaming in buying vegetable plants for the first time. And the manager there told me that he was having a hard time getting starts because there weren't enough workers in the greenhouses and, you know, everything slowed down. But the irony also is that 20 20 somethings and even late teen kids would be streaming into the nursery looking at herbs and things like that for the first time. So probably in that very terrible period of pandemic, new gardeners began to sprout. And that's mm-hmm. a wonderful thing. Yeah, yeah, it's something we discovered on this show. Uh, it was a very, in- it still is an interesting time because the adaptation continues because the pandemic 
continues. Um, at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, for instance, farmers were terrified that uh, that the whole industry was going to shut down. Small farmers. Yeah, small farmers. Well, even and yes. large ones too were plowing under crops because they couldn't get them to stores. Um, it was it was odd and and disturbing. And then we found that the, uh, there was this demand for local food. Healthy people were concerned about staying healthy, and then suddenly yeah. small farmers were having the best years ever. The, and um, yeah. and the same thing occurred mm-hmm. as you mentioned, Kathleen, with uh, uh, gardeners. Is uh, the uh, greenhouses and the nurseries some of had some of which had to be shut down at the beginning? They realized, well, we can open these up, and then their businesses went gangbusters as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I, that's. Mary Kate, is that still continuing as far as you know? Uh, absolutely. It's one of those things where everybody's going, is this going to is this going to drop at some point? But everybody <laughs> in the industry is like seeing more of the waves coming of the interest in gardening. Uh, there's been a change. And in that first year of the pandemic, we were writing the book. We were mm-hmm. actually I uh, really wanting to address all those issues and have a book for people who are picking up a trowel for the first time that is knowledgeable and trustworthy. Uh, it's not going to tell you weird things to do in your garden that aren't scientifically, <laughs> uh, you know, like put mothballs and, oh, terrible stuff in the garden. And, awesome. uh, and people can use it as a jumping off place. And at the same time, people who maybe are much more experienced in gardening can look at the book and pick up new tips as well. So mm-hmm. it was it was for both. But we were writing it. Oh, gosh, I remember we, we had a, a deadline and uh, it was the middle of summer. No, it was September. And suddenly we had these fires in Oregon. Mm. Uh, we had no electricity. Uh, we were seven miles from the front of the fire. And uh, so it was like an irony. Here we are writing about health and, uh, you know, here's all this terrible sort of change going on with uh, the hottest summers and everything that's going on. So, yeah, we (laughs) we brought this book out in the middle of complete change. Uh, Well, while you're on that subject, I, I just have to ask Mary Kate, since you live in Oregon, uh, what is that like? I mean, I, I, I am familiar with the Pacific Northwest having, uh, had a house there. I actually directed a play in Portland, uh, back in mm. the early nineties. Huh. Um, and so I know what the, the weather's like, and it generally until the last couple of decades has been this really benign kind of sweet area. You got a lot of rain, but, uh, you get used to that. What has it been like, this change, especially over the last few years? That has to be kind of disturbing to people like you who live out there. Oh, yeah. Well, the the thing that happened with the fires is there was a climactic thing that happened in Colorado that actually caused the wind to come from the east in, you know, 100-mile-an-hour winds that fueled those fires. And then this June, we had a heat dome. Right. Uh, which we've never had in June. I mean, the, it was three digit heat in June. And when we bought our Christmas tree this year, 
I noticed that it was a noble fir, and I noticed there was a lot of browning on the leaves. They didn't drop off, but they were brown. And I guess somebody didn't want that tree. And, uh, we loved it. We said, <laughs> this is a great tree. This tree has gone through. It was an eight-year-old tree when we looked at the rings. Uh, and that last year rings were so tight. And so it was reflecting the history of what it had gone through. And, and this is just a vital change. And you really, uh, well, the whole thing about healthy gardens is trying to find resilience for mm-hmm. your plants in the garden and, and creating plant communities that can work together. And right. they're going to be able to adapt to the various changing situations yes. every year. The microclimate yes. changes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, let's 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 go through this book. You uh, you mentioned some of the things it does, and uh, you're right. It's it's a little bit of everything. It, yes. Oh, product placement time. Okay. The healthy garden. <laughs> Simple steps yeah. for a greener world. Yep. Just keep getting that up there. Uh, and and here are uh, some of the people that uh, you talk to in the book. And again, it's it's like. You wrote a book with friends, um, and um, uh, who, uh, Kathleen? Maybe you can identify some of the people uh, uh, in this uh, montage. Well, Deborah Baldwin, lower right, um, of course, the succulent guru. I call her. Um, I've known her a long time, and she used to write for me, and we worked together um, on many occasions. Very knowledgeable in succulents. Um, Let's see uh, who else. A lot of these oh, are well, uh, got, of course, Joe Lample, Melinda. of course. We all know Joe yeah. right in the middle with a big smile. And Mary Kate, you want to take it from there? <laughs> well, um, the upper left is uh, Juliet Sargent, and she is a designer in England. And I saw her work at the Chelsea Flower Show. She had a garden there called the Modern Slavery Garden. And in the center of it was the oak tree, not the same oak tree, but the same uh, progeny of the oak tree that Wilbur, uh, William Wilberforce sat under to convince two other Williams to get rid of slavery in the British Empire. It was an amazing garden. Wow. And so uh, she leads off the book. Next to her is Tony Gatoni, who is really into adaptive gardening forever. You can garden all your life. And uh, she's really for it. Next to her is Teresa Spate. And you've had her on the show, Mike and Peggy. And uh, then Pat Munz, who talks about short season gardening. And then Bob Lilly is here on that second row. He does containers. Brie Arthur, who's Uh, uh, Wait, Bob Bob Lilly is the container guy on the houseboat? Yes. Houseboat, oh, everything oh, on yeah. the houseboat. That's yes. Seattle. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. While 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 we're talking about that, I have to I have to just show that photo too because this is really okay. amazing. This is uh, a houseboat, um, and unlike Washington, not, Lake Union. It's Lake on Union. Lake Union. Union. Sorry. Lake Union. Yeah. yeah, Lake Union in Washington State, outside Seattle. And yeah. none of, none of those plants are in the ground, folks. Um, it's just uh, unbelievable that you can do that. I wonder if he uh, uh, deals with weight problems the way you do on a on a uh, a ce- uh, not a ceiling a roof of a, of a building because you have to be careful about the kind of weight that you add with your yeah. uh, plants in containers. 
Yeah, well, the docks are pretty solid. I mean, these are these are meant for a lot of uh, outdoor weathering solid stuff. The houseboats themselves come in all. <laughs> some of them are very seaworthy, and some of them are not so much. <laughs> and, well, uh, I, I like the, your phrase in in the uh, book: "Plants appear to grow on water." The lush foliage of a rollicking collection of containers spills down to Lake Union's water, completely shrouding the decking. Yes, <laughs> that's the way Bob likes it. He actually gardens on seven different houseboats. Oh my goodness! People wow. let him. People just let him go. You know, say, "Oh sure, go ahead, put some you know, you, you, all containers. The trees, everything are all yeah. containers." Yeah, and, yeah. Well, it yeah. sounds like uh, job security to me. If uh, <laughs> that, if if that's your uh, your 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 uh, your career. Uh, here are some of the other folks uh, that uh, you have. So you get advice. Go ahead, Kathy. You can name those. Um, yes, the upper left is Valerie Rice, who gardens in Santa Barbara in Southern California. She has a, a blog called uh, Eat, um, Grow, Eat, Cook. She's a wonderful chef as well, and she grows edibles all over her in raised beds that she designed herself. And um, she's written a wonderful book called Lush Life, um, which is just out. And she's, she's marvelous. Um, and then Janet Sluice is uh, just to her right, holding a, a can of greens. And she works for Plant Development um, uh, Corporation. And they do um, a lot of uh, plant introductions. And she's holding a, one of her introductions, a wonderful grass there. Um, and then on the right is Leslie Bennett, who um, has written her own book. She is um, a wonderful gardener who um, has a, a great history. She, she was working in London for a law firm. She went to law school and she said, this is nuts. I want to be a gardener. <laughs> she headed back to California via the Caribbean. And um, now she, she's a garden designer and specializing in, in food gardening. Uh, lower left is um, uh, Brent uh, Green, who is a wonderful landscape designer, landscape architect in Southern California. And this man has done some wonderful things for Los Angeles because in his neighborhood, when he first moved in, there were no trees and it gets very hot in East L.A. And when he was, a ch well, he was a child, his father is a judge in Southern California. When he was a child, he decided that he was going to use his uh, money that he got for his, you know, weekly allowance and buy trees and plant them in the curb uh, strips along the streets in his neighborhood. And the neighbors got so interested, they started planting trees as well. And so he is Mr. Greening of L.A. And he said it's wonderful because these trees, um, you know, they help clear the smog out of the air and everything. And so he's done a lot for the city of Los Angeles. Well, you know, I love the idea. He, he was talking about on his 35th birthday, he planted 35 trees. Um, yep. and, yes. And he's now and, that's sort of a regular thing with him, I guess. Uh, you know, by the time he's 75, that's going to be a lot of work. <laughs> he loves oh, it yeah. though, and he's still he's still as a, you know at it as he was when he was young. Yeah. And then uh, Ron Vanderhoff is the general manager of Rogers Garden Center in uh, Newport Beach. Yeah, he's, he's in, in the, the center. center with the hat on. Right. And this this man has made it his mission to uh, save the monarch butterflies. You know, the their their numbers were dwindling badly because of habitat the western destruction population. and disappearance. The west coast population, yeah. 
which uh, in the West which, Coast population, right? And uh, which I understand uh, is, is is showing signs of rebounding, which is it good. It is, and one of the reasons he's made it his mission to use the um, the, the particular um, milkweed and to sell it in the nursery and to go out and plant it on weekends in habitats. He's he's pictured in Back Bay in Newport Beach, where um, mm-hmm. the the uh, Territory is starting to come back now, and the numbers are up on the Western monarchs, which is good. And I, I credit him largely for, for that. Well, um, and then, oh, oh, there was one. I can go back one more. You wanted to? Well, um, there was there. Oh, you, there yeah, are two Nancy here. Buehler, Nancy Buehler. Because um, Nancy Buley works uh, for um, the tree. Uh, <laughs> Kate, help J. me Frank out. Schmidt. The tree. Frank Frank J. J. Frank, Frank Schmidt. Schmidt. In, J. Frank Schmidt in in Oregon, and um, she has been uh, she's a you know an arborist and a tree. She has a blog called Treeforia, and um, she's a part of all the new introductions of great new trees from J. Frank Schmidt. And some of them they do have a new crab apple coming out, so you'll have to check that out. Uh-huh. At J. Frank Schmidt. Uh-huh. And there is a last woman there, Darcy Daniels. She was up in the corner. Yeah. And I just wanted to mention her because she has in the book she has this wonderful way to think about your garden. I was thinking about you, Mike, saying you want to take out a tree that's in your garden, and how hard that is. And uh, so. What she does is she groups plants into forever plants. Those are the ones Mm -hmm. you will have. And for now. And you'll have the for now plants until the forever plants get big enough. And I just think that's a great idea because it gives you sort of gives you permission to say, okay, that was a for now plant. I can take that out. And it sounds like the tree in the center of your garden that we were talking about earlier was... uh, is a for now plant. It's yeah. not a forever plant. It's turning out to be that way. I mean, I love it. That's part of the problem too, is that you think of all the good things yeah. that a plant like that has to offer. And then you have, you have to do the pro and con list and, and taking out a tree is tough too, because you really, if I'm going to do it, it's going to be now. Uh, during the winter, yeah. during the dormant uh, mm-hmm. period, and when the ground is frozen, so that the rest of the garden doesn't get yeah, creamed by by all the construction. Um, so I have to think about that. Hey, listen, we need to take a short break. Uh, so that's a good start. We've seen all the people that, or, or a lot of the people you talked to, and that was the idea. You uh, and product placement. Thank you very much, Peggy. For those of you listening on the podcast, you have no idea what I'm talking about. Um, but um, we are talking. Uh, about the healthy garden simple steps for a greener world our guests are kathleen and brenzel and mary kate Mackey. it's the mike novak show with peggy malecki and we'll have more in just a second starting seeds with fluorescence let's talk you've used fluorescent bulbs for as long as you can remember to start your seeds and they work We get it. Or you look at alternative lights to start seeds and the fluorescents are noticeably less expensive. We get that too. But I'm here to tell you, you and your plants deserve better. It's time to take seed starting to another level. Here is why a good quality LED grow light does so much better than those fluorescent bulbs. Your seedlings will get a better start in life with stronger stems and no legginess. 
Not only will they have stronger stems, they will be stronger overall in order to fight off disease. You can get them in the ground faster because the cycle time for growth can be shortened. You will save money overall because you can grow better quality plants in a shorter amount of time with much less energy than you use with fluorescence. soil treatments to summer foliar feeding to fall stubble digesters, Blazing Star provides microbial tools from tiny biologicals for natural and organic farmers. They have solutions for home gardeners too. And Blazing Star offers agroecological education and consulting, especially for permaculture work in zones four and five. Learn more about these great folks at blazing-star.com. And welcome back to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. We're talking to uh, Kathleen Norris Brenzel and Mary Kate Mackey, authors of The Healthy Garden, Simple Steps for a Greener World. Uh, we've introduced uh, the people um, who helped you write the book. You guys wrote the book. You just talked to a, a lot of folks, and um, yeah. that's a good way to, to write a book. Um, now let's talk about some of what is in there and some of the advice and let's go through some of the 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 photos you sent because they they will inspire us uh to talk about some of uh tips that you you have uh in the book i was trying to figure out how to describe the book and and the gestalt uh, uh, of the book it's it's wonderful it's a really good book for a beginner but uh and i think you mentioned this uh before mary kate but uh even people yeah, the photography is wonderful. Uh, the the photos, it's uh, there. We go. We actually we, we actually have that one. Let's uh, let's pop that up right now and describe what we're looking at. Yeah, this is a a, a garden in the northeast. Um, the photograph uh, Rob Cardello took this image, and it um, actually I the the owner of this garden scatters these seeds every year it just blew me away that that was planted by by a person wow it is the most beautiful well obviously he's uh, in farm country so there's a lot of room around there but um or i should say he's he's got a good lot there to start with but it looks like nature planted it it's most and and it's a beautiful way to set off that sculpture yeah the sculpture uh really really does uh add to that um, here's another one that just makes me feel right at home. Um, mm-hmm. It is uh, uh, this lovely little garden, and you can even see the chicken uh, on the lower right hand. Uh, 
part of that. Uh, who wants to take this one? Go ahead I'll and take that on. Yeah, that, that this um, Saxon Holt ph- photographed this garden. It's in the Northwest. And it's really a, a wonderful garden for many respects because if they grow all of their own food, literally, um, raised beds, they built the raised beds so that they can grow corn, tomatoes, um, you name it, squash, they've got everything there. And this is just a portion. There's only two pictured, but the, the, the garden goes on. They harvest their own uh, rainwater to irrigate the garden. And if you look on the back right and see that big um, uh, cistern Blue. there with a pipe yeah. that goes right. in yeah. to, the, um, yeah. to the plumbing, uh, it, it, collects all their own rainwater. They compost everything. You see the chicken coop in the foreground, so they harvest eggs. I I mean, they have, and then permeable paving, that's all, there's no paving there. They've got just wood chips down, so the rainwater goes right into the ground where they want it. They've made wonderful use of, this is a small suburban garden, and they've made wonderful use of every square foot. And literally, they eat off of their own land. Uh, you talk about compost. Um, let's 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 chat about that just a little bit. Um, um, you uh, tell us how important compost is, and and a lot of people know that, but we cannot emphasize that enough. It seems to me. Uh, one of the things you write in the beginning about healthy gardens is that healthy gardens rarely, if ever, need chemicals, including in- insecticides. Instead, these gardens rely on natural methods to control any insect pests or plant diseases that may appear. Even sprays labeled organic are used with caution because they are not pest-specific. A spray you choose to kill aphids will kill beneficial insects as well. Better to hose or wipe the aphids off and concentrate on improving your soil with compost and mulch because in most cases, pests go for the least healthy plants first. So what you're saying here is that use compost, your plants are going to be healthier, and you won't need all of that stuff, which I have said for years, most gardeners do not need to touch at all. You're I feel like folks are wasting their money when they're reaching for a box or a bottle on a shelf in a in a box store. Well, the neat thing about compost is that it it uh, delivers to the soil and then thus to the plants in a very measured way. It's it's not you haven't given the plants a shot of just a jolt of oh, oh now I got nitrogen. Woo! going to put out some huge leaves. Time to grow. Uh, Yeah, time to grow, time to grow. The problem with that is, and I discovered that very early in my gardening life, uh, plants that grow with too much vigor are, it's like they're sending out a signal to insects and other pests to say, hey, check this guy out. He's (laughs) he's sort of all over the place. And a plant that grows slower and uh, is is really utilizing what it's there in the soil and working a little bit to get it. Uh, it it's like it's below the radar for the bugs, so they don't notice it as much. So it a- makes it easier. Absolutely, um, and uh, it's it and and when you talk about the organics, uh, and mm-hmm. and some people think that if you use an organic chemical a pesticide it, it's going to be safer um if you if you're using it as a pesticide there's a reason and that is because it's toxic to something um and even vinegar uh there that's a classic example uh some folks say well use vinegar instead uh well 
what what happens if you get vinegar in your eye? You you know what's going to happen. That's that's bad news. Um, you have to be very careful handling stuff like that too. So just because it's organic doesn't mean uh, that it's safe. Um, one of the people you you talk about in the book is the the, the guy who writes the garden myth column, um, mm-hmm. and I'm blanking on his name right now. Um, Corrick is this Robert Corrick? No, 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 not Corrick. Uh, uh, I am it, too. Uh, I'll find it. Is it <laughs> is it Parvis? Something. Oh, yeah, I think it is. Yeah, I think it's Robert Parvis, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Um, uh, and uh, I've been meaning to get him on the show too because he he talks about all kinds of garden myths out there. Robert Pavlis. Oh, let's see. Oh, well, I'm sorry. What was it? Yeah. Robert Pavlis. Pavlis. Yeah. That's it. Thank you. Okay, correction. Not my Thank Robert's you. Mixed up. Yeah. Oh no, no, it's my fault. I I should have been ready for that. Um, so where is this garden? This this garden is Northern California. This is a beautiful shot that Saxon Holt took. And what I love about this is it's a little re- private retreat tucked in the back of a garden where you can kind of go through an opening in a hedge and go in there and sit down and just be peaceful for a moment. It's a tranquil corner. And um, several kinds of plants are mingling together there. And um, it, it's just, I like the combination of greens and blue greens and yeah. spiky and yeah. um, billowy, all the shrubs together. It's an example of one of the gifts gardens can give you, which is a feeling of safety and enclosure and peace. I think all that's in that picture. All right. Now, here's then we go to this, which is kind of the opposite because it's so open. Uh, And yet it is also quite enticing. It's a garden that's being used as a buffer uh, between the area around the house, I assume, and uh, an open field. Yes. And this is in uh, Colorado. And um, what's nice about it is the way that's a prairie beyond their garden. And I like the way they designed it uh, to go from their patio down a slope to a transition zone. And the transition zone is kept small with low-growing plants. Um, There's a lot of different ground covers and shrubs and things that provide winter color or, or, um, you know, when fall color changing leaves. And then the, the just the mown grass beyond, and it makes a beautiful backdrop to the Rocky Mountains. Yes, and uh, I it want to. It. Yeah, um, and I'm I'm going. We're going to get. Uh, I'm looking for my uh, cheat sheet here, and I'll get to that in a second. But I want to. This is uh, a, here's a different, entirely different kind of feel. You know, what we're not going to get in the Midwest. Yes, this is in, uh, this is actually in Tucson. This is the native saguaro. And the people, uh, cactus, that big cactus with multi arms, that's a very old mm-hmm. plant. And when the, this is a case where the garden grew up around the saguaro cactus. And that's always a challenge for homeowners who buy some, uh, buy a property. And uh, how do you build a garden around iconic plants that have been there for centuries probably and what they did was choose barrel cat golden barrel cactus and other low-growing cactus and planted them as they you know kind of free form as they would be planted in nature to complement and anchor that beautiful saguaro to <clears throat> to the you know the garden and then 
it echoes the, the natural saguaros. If you look behind and over the back fence, that's where the wild land is and there are native saguaros there. This is a beautiful example of take your design cues from what's already on your land and what surrounds it. Absolutely. Um, here's one that I really like. Um, this reminds me of the area uh, around uh, my former home in the Pacific Northwest. This is, where is, is this in the Pacific Northwest too? Yes, this is the Pacific Northwest. And um, what I like about this is, again, it feels like a Northwest rainforest. And yeah, if you look yeah, on the yeah. left side of that, this was Doreen Wynia who took the photograph, just planted herself where she could get a view, perfect view of a stumpery, which if you look on the left, that is an old tree you can see the roots sticking up, um, and then she uh, she turned this old stump on its, the owner of the property turned the old stump on its side, planted ferns and mosses on the what was left of the bottom of the trunk, and then planted ferns all around it um, to create this little, what she calls a stumpery garden. And then it is a fern garden on the back of the property that you just want to mingle and walk around, and the pathways let you do that. And uh, speaking of compost, there's uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's yes. this is uh, that's Joe Lample's garden, isn't it? Uh, no, actually, this one is not Joe Lample's oh. garden, but it's in Joe Lample's uh, Gathering of Gardeners section. This is an illustration yeah. of what Joe is in love with le- leaves, and he collects all his neighbors' leaves, and he makes these big bins of leaves. And uh, he uses them as uh, mulch on everything. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it's so great because I, I just heard him the other day saying, now he's not even going to chop the leaves up. He's going to leave the leaves whole because even in the bins, they're sheltering all kinds of insect life yeah. down in there. And uh, he doesn't want to chop that up anymore. So uh, we're, yeah. I mean, it's really interesting how the consciousness is evolving. This is a, a photograph by Robin Bachelor Cushman. And uh, so it's here in Oregon, I think just below Eugene, uh, a, a little farm there. And But this is basically to illustrate Joe's love of leaves. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. And, and, and as you say in the book, what happens in your garden stays in your garden. And this is a prime absolutely. example. Yes. Yeah. And what happens in other people's garden stays in Joe's garden. He just goes around. Yeah. yeah. Been there, done that. Yep. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and you mentioned the, some of the photographers, uh, uh, and I want to, to give credit to some of those people. Uh, Robert, uh, is it Cardillo or Cardillo? Do you pronounce that? Rob Cardillo, Rob Cardillo, Saxon Holt, Matthew Thomas, Mark Turner, Doreen. Is it Winja or Winya? Winya. Winya. Okay. Of course, I (laughs) do it two ways wrong. Um, And those are some of the people whose uh, photographs we are seeing here. And and as Peggy mentioned earlier, they're just some wonderful, wonderful shots Mm -hmm. uh, like this one. Look at the uh, the lovely. Uh, you know, not a thing in bloom here. Well, yes, there is. Okay, off to the side. But the focus is not the blooms, it's the foliage. And this yeah. is actually a, a, my Burma. photograph. So I'm thrilled to at least have a couple of photos in the book because I'm, uh, I, you know, I'm a writer. But uh, <laughs> this is Ernie and Marietta O'Byrne's garden outside Eugene. 
and they are so good uh, at being able to combine a diversity of plants and make them look fabulous. This garden has all the the same similar colors and totally different leaf shapes yeah. uh, all next to each other with that long skinny leaves on the one side and the rounded uh, sort of silvery uh, Brunera mm -hmm. on the other side. It's just a gorgeous, they're very, very good at how they combine their plants together. Yeah. Uh, and here are more raised beds. I have to admit, I do not have any raised beds um, in my yard. Um, I have never felt it uh, absolutely necessary. I suppose I could go down that road. Uh, it, it depends uh, uh, where you are and what you're trying to accomplish. Um, and how much yes, space this is um, this is Valerie Rice's garden. Um, we saw her picture earlier, the, the, the author of the Lush Life book. And, and she is really all about gardening and cooking and cooking from fresh things from her garden. So um, she designed these raised beds and they're roughly four by eight and she gardens year round. So she plants, um, you know, her cool season crops, chard and lettuces and um all kinds of like, greens in the fall, harvest those in the spring, changes the soil, well, not changes it, but amends it and gets it all proper again before she plants a summer crop. So she has things going all year there. And then she has, if you look behind the raised bed, she has large containers as well where she has filled in. And then she has uh, fruit trees and, and um, everything there is edible. Are the fruit trees in the ground, uh, Kathleen? Are the there fruit are trees some in the fruit ground? trees in the ground? Yeah, there are some fruit trees in the ground. Um, oh, okay. Not not in this picture, but oh, uh, these are all containered. Right, yeah, yeah. There there are some containers down here, but we're not seeing her whole garden in this picture. Mm -hmm. um, but and just opposite, she has a wonderful workbench that. So it's it's a beautifully designed space uh, for growing edibles. Uh, here's yeah. another arid space. Uh, where is this? This is New Mexico, and this is an all-native garden. This Saxon Holt took this uh, picture um, on one of his many trips to New Mexico. But, you know, they have a problem down there with um, – it's very dry, obviously, and irrigating plants can be a challenge. So this garden was designed to make use of whatever rain does fall – and if you look at the top of the house in the back, you'll see a shoot sticking out from near the uh, near where the you know the roof point, and mm -hmm. rainfall collects and runs through that trough into this dry creek bed, and carries the moisture down past all of those planting areas. So it focuses as a river that gushes through and provides uh, irrigation to all of those native plants. Uh, and uh, protection for your garden can be yes. uh, important. Well, it's all, it's part of the resilience that you can build into a garden. This is a very short season garden that that's uh, a picture Mark Turner took and it's in um, the high desert part of, I can't remember if it's Washington or Oregon, uh, but the Eastern 
side where it's which is much drier but also um, more four seasons heavier duty winters and these people grow year-round this is uh you saw val rice's garden uh year-round in california well this is year-round where the weather is much more inclement but it allows you to have something growing all the time mm-hmm. and one more before uh i ask a uh, uh, for a little bit of a wrap up here. This is uh, fun with shrubs. <laughs> oh, yes, this is in a, this is a Pacific Northwest garden designed by garden designer, Stacy Crooks. And um, I, Doreen Wanya shot this one again too. I think it's absolutely gorgeous because um, it, it shows different heights of plants. Um, there's some grasses in the foreground, it's designed to move, to step up from uh, low to midsize to taller to columnar to a big tree in the back. And it also combines different foliage colors um, from, um, you know, all different. You know, I, I, I don't have the plant list right in front of me, but there, there are many different kinds that she paired for their golden foliage, for their plum colored foliage. And... Um, it's absolutely uh, stunning for that reason. It's it's a really a wonderful play on texture, color, and shape. And it's also something I wanted to say about uh, it. Really, it's gardening with nature when you fill all the different niches all the way down to the ground, mm-hmm. because it actually makes your life easier. <laughs> well, and you, uh, you you talk yeah. about ground covers too. Uh, don't forget right. the ground covers, and uh, you 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 mentioned sweet woodruff in there, and I don't have time, but I could tell you the story of how my sweet woodruff killed my ginkgo tree. Um, I and yet my it. Garden, it it's wonderful in my garden. Yeah. Yes. You You have to audition your ground covers. You have to know who you're playing with at any one time. Um, Well, one of the really great things really, really quick is you also spend a lot of time talking about natives. So thank you. (laughs) Right. You're Uh, welcome. And well, we're going to have Doug Tallamy on in a couple of weeks and there's that balance. Um, And this is a conversation that, that uh, we often have on the show. What is the balance between how many natives in your yard? And you can see in the, in these photos a lot of natives, but there's a lot of plants that are not native to those areas. How do you how do you make that balance? That balance, I think, is a mix of nativars and cultivars. That they did a study in Britain that we cite in the book, a six year study about putting those together and it turns out that when you make a mix you actually support more pollinators for longer periods of time because many natives are very short blooming for other reasons uh uh, you know depends on where they are but longer is better for everybody including the gardener who gets to enjoy native penstemon and then cultivars of penstemon um and before we go, we really haven't touched too much on what a garden can do for you individually. Uh, one of the things is it's, it makes you healthier just by being out in the garden. I love your advice about stretching uh, and just taking it easy before you go. That's, that's not something I ever do. It's, you know, you know me, I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to grab the 40 pound bag of mulch and sling it over my shoulder. The very first thing. And then wonder why you I don't feel why you can't move with it. 
day. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, don't don't do that, folks. Don't do what I do. Um, and the other thing is is how gardens give to the world. I love the uh, story. Uh, we mentioned uh, Teresa Spate uh, in the spring of 2020 mm-hmm. when the pandemic kept so many at home. Food security was on the minds of many, Teresa says. Plots and community gardens filled. We talked about this earlier. So she started to plant. She put extra seedlings of all the warm season vegetables, peppers, tomatoes, eggplant, squash, and flowers out on her driveway with a sign that said free. See, I'm looking. Yep, there it is. Free plants. And they all disappeared before noon. And this is how this your garden contributes to the world, not just contributing to our insect populations. We mentioned monarchs earlier that need help, uh, but to our human populations, uh, teaching people how to grow, how to grow their own food is, is very important, isn't it, Kathleen? It is, uh, but not only, but beyond that, gardeners uh, increasingly are using their skills to make the world a better place. And in our resource section, I was shocked when we started researching that, finding all of these groups around the country that are working to save the country's prairies, its wetlands, its coasts, you know, like Louisiana that's losing uh, land regularly and they have to keep um, planting trees to hold the land in place. Volunteers are stepping up everywhere and there are so many opportunities for gardeners. Once you have your garden the way you like it, to go join other gardeners and make this country and the world a better place through gardening. And you touch on all of that in this book, which is is, is pretty remarkable. You, 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 you give advice. It's not, as I said, it's not really a how-to book. It's a why-to book, but you do have garden advice as well. Um, and now I'm going to do things completely backward because at the beginning of the show, I should have given your credits, but here they are, just so you know who these people are. Kathleen Norris Brenzel is an award-winning editor and author with more than 14 garden books uh, bearing her byline, including the Sunset Western Garden Book, which we talked about. You did four editions of that. The Sunset Western Landscaping Book, two editions, Easy Care Plantings, and the Western Garden Book of Edibles among others. And you were also garden editor at Sunset Magazine, and I owe a lot of my gardening knowledge to you. Uh, Mary-Kate Mackey uh, is a seven-time winner of GardenCom Awards for writing, including a gold in 2021. She co-authored with Kathleen Brenzel, Sunset Secret Gardens, 153 Ideas from the Pros, and contributed to Sunset's Gardening in the Northwest and the Sunset Western Garden book. You've written 200-plus articles in national and regional publications, such as Fine Gardening, Horticulture, Country Gardens. And that, uh, uh, what was the book you did on uh, writing? Because when you were on our show in the past, uh, that you had just published that. Yes, in 2017, Write Better Right Now. Yeah, It's for people who want the down and dirty hacks to be a better writer immediately. Don't wait. <laughs> um, I, perhaps I should pick up that book. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'll get back to my blog and, and make corrections afterward. Uh, Kathleen and Mary-Kate, uh, wonderful having you on the show this morning. Thank you so much uh, for uh, a really, really good book. It's there's the product placement again. Yeah, Thank you, Peggy. <laughs> uh, 
Um, and uh, much uh, luck on your. Uh, do you have? Act, what are you going to do for a, a tour? A a book tour? I guess it's going to be all online like this, pretty much, isn't it? Yes, it will be a virtual tour. Although I am appearing at the Northwest Flower and Garden Show in February. I'm on the opening day. I'm doing a presentation. Oh, okay. About how you know nature bats last, so you ought to be on nature's team. Uh, absolutely, and we've actually had the guy who's on our show who uh, writes that blog. You familiar with? Uh, yes, Guy McPherson. Um, so, uh, Mary Kate and Kathleen, thank you so much. You have a wonderful Sunday, and uh, I hope we talk very soon. Thank, thank you, Mike you. and Peggy. Uh, it's Thank the Mike you. Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Peggy and I are back right after this. Looking for a career with growth potential? Do you yearn to learn and prosper? Want to be a true innovator and industry leader? Look no further. We're Bartlett Tree Experts. We've been growing strong for well over 100 years, and we're just getting started. Discover why we have an unmatched reputation for service and ingenuity that have made us the official tree care service for many of the nation's and the world's most prestigious clients. Our people thrive in a safety-first, entrepreneurial, promote-from-within environment. Bartlett employees receive industry-leading training at our state-of-the-art research laboratories and education facility in Charlotte, North Carolina. At Bartlett, opportunity grows on trees. Through our foundation, we invest in the education of students of arboriculture, horticulture, forestry, and related fields. Employment opportunities are endless at Bartlett Tree Experts. Those who join the Bartlett team tend to love it here. Bartlett really opened my eyes to what's involved with arboriculture and all the aspects of tree care. As a plant healthcare specialist at Bartlett, I am able to apply what I've learned at school on a day-to-day basis. We offer some of the most competitive benefits in the industry, including paid holidays and vacations, medical and dental benefits, a 401k plan, life insurance, and much more. For over 100 years, Bartlett Tree Experts has been unrivaled in innovation and the tremendous opportunity it makes possible. Our cutting-edge thinking fosters a culture where breakthrough ideas become real-world solutions and our employees become respected leaders. Visit Bartlett.com to learn more about some of our exciting career options. After age 65, immunity starts to wane. Your immune system just isn't as strong as it used to be. And that's why it is important for people age 65 and older to get a booster dose of vaccine. Boosters are a standard way of reminding our immune system about a bacteria or a viral pathogen that we want to have a strong response with antibodies and killer T cells to block that pathogen before it causes severe disease. Welcome to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Green, gardening, and environment radio with just a soup-saw of humor. Or is that a dash? Brought to you by Bartlett Tree Experts. Every tree needs a champion. Go to Bartlett.com. Here they are again, Peggy Malecki and Mike Novak. All I need is good food to eat and make me healthy, wealthy, wide awake. 
Lettuce, tomatoes, root and bacon. What about those sweet potatoes? All I need is good food to eat. All I need is good food to eat. All I need is good tools to make me music, porches, lawn serene. Give me all that I can take. Da 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 ba ba. Hey, welcome back to the show. Oh, I forgot. I forgot that. I forgot to show them. I was going to show them a photo. Well, I'll show you and I'll show our our viewers here um, a, sh- a photo that I took yesterday of a plant in my house. Here it is. All right. Ooh. Uh, did you glue you, those on just for the photo? Did you uh, ever see an agave bloom like that before? No. Well, maybe at the Botanic Garden at some point in the greenhouse, but no, not that. You know what it's blooming? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's that's what it's blooming. Say, did you glue glue those on? That's what I asked before. It, it, but the no, garden, no, I don't have to glue them on. I just pop. See, look at this. Yeah. All right, here's what I realized. I brought this. This I got this agave from uh, Guy Sternberg down at Star Hill okay. for, Forest in Menard wow, County. Oh, nicely. And it, oh my gosh, it's it's huge. All, but it's beautiful. It's huge. And I repotted it this year uh, outside, and then I brought it back in, uh, and I put it there, and it just looks so lovely, uh, and it needs room to spread a little bit, so I can't put it right up against the window. I suppose I could rearrange something. But what I realized was, if you see, there's plants behind it, and a couple of times I was reaching in to water those plants. Oh. And, and I real and yeah. I almost... I almost and you I, got the point quickly. I uh, Well, I... I was close to poking my eye out. Okay. Those, the tips of that agave are so they're razor sharp. Uh, and well, they're like, they're, it's like a, um, a needle. Um, Mm -hmm. and I realized I'm going to kill myself, uh, and so I thought, what can I put on that to, to remind me that it, it, and I, I, gosh, doesn't everybody have half a dozen Rudolph noses in their house? (laughs) <laughs> creative uh, problem solving so i put those on and now i don't have to worry about about poking my eye out uh and when i'm or, or watering well it's it's it, it it's a reminder but it's also a protection you know you can bump well, those. you're protecting the plant too um i don't know i i don't think so i think the plant can no. f- fend for itself uh <laughs> So there you uh, go. Um, one of the things, well, I, yes. And go. I was going to, I know we got a list to talk about, but I go ahead. I did look up what, what Dolly Swipes Foster was referring to. About when she posted about the dunes being threatened. Oh, yes. Yes. Go ahead. So uh, Hammond full steam ahead on railroad bridge. Environmental concerns persist. Governor's Parkway will cut through Briar East Woods destroying 4,000-year-old Tolleston Ridge sand dunes near 169th and Parrish Avenue. Um, they are trying to put a flyover, or they're trying to put a bridge over the train tracks. And um, unfortunately, it would cut diagonally into an estimated 8 to 18 acres of the 32-acre Briar East Woods, requiring the trees be clear-cut and bulldozed. The Department of the Interior declared it to be, quote, partially a remnant of the native sand dune and wetland swale ecosystem that existed in this portion of Hammond before the city's founding 
and partially regrowth of lands disturbed by the development of neighboring properties. It's home to black oaks, red oaks, maples, wafer ash, bracken fern, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it's uh, the book Shifting Sand identified the sand ridge running through Hammond's Hessville neighborhood as part of the 4,000-year-old high Tolleston dunes that ran between Calumet City and Portage, creating a, a rare beach ridge and swale ecosystem from when Lake Michigan extended further inland. So there we go. We have yet another environmental crisis to deal with. We've got to get that, get someone on our show to talk about that as well. Uh, I first, I'm so glad uh, uh, Dolly wrote to us um, about that because I, I was unaware oh, of that. Up there. And of course, uh, earlier in the show, we were talking about the. Uh, I keep wanting to, I, I can't, I, Carvana thing. I can't, I can't, I, I always want to go, I want to say CarMax and then, nope, or, it's or, Carvana. Or Tivana. Uh, well, <laughs> the Carvana, first of all, those things are goofy. Um, they're they're the, a gimmick. They're a gimmick, as you say. Uh, and you said something yesterday that really uh, struck me and I thought was really important about it is that in five or 10 years, people will say, oh, that was so. 2021 that they'll people go do they still use those things and if you don't know what we're talking about carvana um has these towers where they put cars in the cars go up and down and it's like a dispenser and i i don't know what the purpose of it is i've never really looked it's a gimmick it's to see your car in space something like that i think part of the argument is well you're not taking this huge acreage to put the cars, they can be vertical, but vertical and lit up 24 hours and using a lot of resources to build this nine-story tower. Right. I mean, we had a, we, we had enough problems with uh, that little low glass apple um, building in along the Chicago River because they would light it and it had all the glass walls and the birds would, bam, mm-hmm. fly into it. Uh this is next to Harms Wood. And last week, uh, Kathleen and our friend Mac, who is the senior amateur nature correspondent for the Mike Novak show. And I was going to show a video of it and I forgot to prepare the video. Yeah. We went yeah. there. We went to, uh, we went to Harms Woods and we, she was taking water samples to test for chloride, which we will be discussing later, uh, when Rick DeMaio comes by. Um, and, a, and what a beautiful place. It was just after the snow. Um, just gorgeous. And I should have popped, uh, I, had a, I had a photo, which maybe I can, I can I, you know, if, when I get a chance, I will pop that photo up because I've, I've got it here someplace. At any rate, um, can you imagine the, the birds using that and then flying out and seeing this light? And, I mean, it just sounds like, uh, a disaster waiting to happen. So um, there was a a commission, uh, the Skokie uh, of the Skokie Board, and they voted five to one to approve it the other night. Now that now it needs to go before the full board, which I believe because I put yeah, it on. I'm posting that link right now. Um, what's the date of that? Yeah, uh, mid January. 
The Skokie Plan Commission voted, this is according to Patty Wetley from WTTW, the Skokie Plan Commission voted five to one in favor of Carvana's modified site plan for the tower, which will next come before the Village Board of Trustees for final approval, likely in mid-January. The commission had okayed Carvana's proposal back in November, but the trustees kicked the matter back to the commission in December to to address four issues, building and sign lighting, truck routes, delivery hours, and bird strike preventions. And Carvana did go back and make some changes to the plan, but according to uh, Patty Wetley's story, um, they uh, (laughs) the the environmentalists there just said, "No, it's not going to work." Are you kidding me? So, what are you thinking? They're not. I mean, that that's so. Well, they are thinking profit. Yeah, yeah, but putting it right, you know, they're all they're thinking is, well, it's on a freeway. That's what yeah, we want. We want people to see it. Eden's by Old Orchard. That's, yeah. that's where but located. it was funny because when we were at Harms Woods the other last week, last Sunday, um, there were some people hiking and somebody commented, said, it's hard to believe this. This is just a half a mile from Old Orchard Shopping Center. And basically it is. It's probably more like a mile, but it's so close. Yeah, and, and and it seems so remote. Um, you know, it's 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 in the burbs, uh, but it's uh, this wonderful area, quiet and beautiful, and mm-hmm. and now let's make it a little worse if we can. So, well, I hope they come to their senses. Yeah, it says ultimately the plan commission concurred, though commission member Jeff Berman. Uh, put forward a motion to incorporate Prince's recommendations into the site plan. He couldn't muster the votes. The Carvana proposal was instead approved with the company's revisions. The partial wrap pattern only on the glass and light dimming along with limits on delivery hours and truck routes. Berman cast the lone nay vote. The partial wrap. Yeah. Don't worry. Yeah. We'll, we'll only That's- kill a few birds. How's that? How about if we just kill some We'll see if we can just kill pigeons, all right? And yeah. or so, something. so Car- Carvana says um, he counted Carvana was being held to his. Or, um, I have to look up who Sassenberg. Unfortunately, it's further up in here. A counter that quote Carvana was being held to a standard no other building along Harms Woods or in Skokie had ever been required to meet. There's no Skokie code for bird mitigation. We would be the only building with mitigation. We don't think we can get to a perfect solution, but it does far exceed requirements. Well, then make. A plan for mitigation. <laughs> no, no, no. That's too simple. That's crazy talk. What are you, what are you saying? Uh, so anyway, which takes us to uh, the Bell Bowl Prairie situation. Um, and in two weeks when uh, author Doug Tallamy from uh, Bringing Nature Home. And uh, I'm getting, I'm picking up his oak his mm-hmm. book about yeah. oaks this afternoon at the, ah, uh, I have that one at yeah. the, well, I'm getting it at the library. I'm using my library card and going to the library. Um, and, uh, we will talk to him about that. And of course his, uh, the situation at Bell Bowl Prairie, um, I wrote to him, uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I saw a post on the save Bell Bowl Prairie Facebook page and, um, E.O. Wilson had just died, mm-hmm. and Tallamy wrote uh, a tribute to E.O. Wilson, and someone had posted it, and so I reposted it uh, on 
uh, our Facebook page, on the show Facebook page. Uh, and somebody said, somebody ought to write to Doug Dallamy and see if he can help this situation. So uh, you did. I did. I just sat down and did it right then. And you said, I just happen to have his email address. Uh, right here. Exactly. And he just happened to write back within a couple of hours. I was uh, pretty amazed. Um, and what he had to say was frustrating. Uh, and we'll talk about this when he's on the show in a couple of weeks. But he said, uh, folks think I have a lot more influence than I really do in situations like this. He said uh, that he gets a request at least once a week uh, regarding uh, uh, an area like that that's threatened and people asking him to intercede, uh, write an op-ed. He says he writes op-eds, but they don't, the papers almost never publish them. He said the only time they publish them is if they have asked him to do the op-ed. Um, and the the most interesting thing he said was uh, that politicians uh, are game changers, that they could turn it on a dime, that was his phrase, if they really wanted to. Now, you mentioned that, speaking of politicians, that uh, our our Senator Duckworth had written something on to someone who wrote to her about the Belleville Prairie situation. Yeah. Domenico had posted this, um, and I don't have the post in front of me right now. Oh, okay. Um, but... I... but he had written a long letter to Senator Duckworth and got a, a letter back that was somewhat a form letter, although it did actually mention Bell Bowl and a couple of other things, but it was so noncommittal and so vague. Is that your interpretation or his interpretation? Um, kind of both. Okay. Uh, you know, and it, yeah. was, it was it was much more of a and, and other people who read it. It's so if you want to follow some of this, go to the Save Belbo Prairie Facebook group. It's a public group that you can join. Yep, um, that's where a lot of these things are posted. Yeah, uh, and they post them all the time. Um, and speaking of which, there's a public meeting to hear updates on what's happening. And and folks, we're uh, we're uh, the the car is careening towards the cliff. March 1st, there might be bulldozers out there. Um, the, uh, the airport authority, the uh, Rock, uh, Chicago Rockford International Airport Authority is fighting this in court. They're claiming that uh, the, the, group, the group... National that, Land Institute that, has no standing. No standing at all. And isn't going to be harmed. That's, that the group's not going to be harmed has nothing... They're looking at it has nothing to do with the land, the prairie, the everything else, that the group won't be harmed if it's bulldozed. So March 1st is just right around the corner. Uh, and so there's a public meeting this week um, that will be, oh, and I had it, come on, I had it right here. It's, and I, yeah, pushed, I have everything except the I've got it. The, the it, date. it is on, um, well, actually, the date's not here in Jones for I, Public Meeting. Sign the I know, alert. That's, that's, I have the same thing you have, which is it doesn't, they didn't put the date. So I think it's Tuesday. Here, let me go look. I think it um, is too. I, I'm going to save Belbel Prairie's site. Uh, yes, it is January 11th. So that's Tuesday. Yeah. And, and now, on the other hand, and, and by the way, the, we have the link. Um, at MikeNovak.net uh, on the blog post. 
If you want to join that Zoom meeting on Tuesday, the, the link is there that you can use to join. And there's also uh, an action alert uh, via the Illinois Environmental Council um, at, that you can sign, another one that you can sign and send to your your representatives who are being very tight-lipped about this. Um, they just, they won't even, I'm, I'm, you know, it's, it was good to hear that uh, Senator Duckworth actually said the words or printed the words Belleville Prairie because most of them won't even say it out loud or refer to it in particular. Yet, on the other hand, all this is happening there to just let the prairie grow through, go th- get destroyed as the airport expands. Uh, Civil Eats just had a piece in November, quote, after years of pushing for prairie strips, the ecologist won a MacArthur Genius Grant for working with farmers to plant prairie strips next to cropland to improve soil health and water quality and mitigate climate change. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. So that's, uh, and that, that, article is there too i've got that uh, on on the site um here's uh one that uh i saw and you and i have talked about this in the past and actually i was doing a i think was it you when i was doing a talk several years ago we did some research on eggs oh yeah and yeah, we've uh, talked about it on the show i've actually had an article i think in the magazine at one point two one yeah, and the headline for this story is cage-free is basically meaningless and other lies your egg carton is telling you. Um, I can't tell you how hard it is to shop for eggs if you don't already have a brand that you trust and you think um, are doing things responsibly. Um, you know, another way is to, to know your farmer and get farmer, you know, like... Uh, uh, Cedar Valley, they they raise uh, they uh, raise eggs, and you know you, that's one place you can you can get them. But if you're shopping retail and trying to figure it out, first of all, why is it that some of the organic products are encased in plastic? I do not get that. Uh, that doesn't make any sense. Meaning that they they use plastic egg cartons rather than the paper or cardboard egg cartons. I will not buy eggs if they're in plastic, period, done, end of story. Uh, so that's one thing. Uh, but in this article, uh, which was in Lifehacker, if you have the words fresh or farm fresh or natural or hormone-free or no added hormones, that means absolutely bupkis. For instance, hormones, they write, the FDA banned the use of added hormones in egg-producing chickens over 60 years ago. Um, Hormones are found in all living things, but according to upcertified.com, no growth or production hormones are ever fed to young hens being grown to be egg-laying hens, nor during the egg-laying period. So if they say that, they're just putting that on there because they can't. Now, egg words that, are, that technically mean something but aren't that helpful. If you see the word brown, 
it tells you the color of the eggshell, which you can figure out yourself if you open it up. <laughs> but if it's plastic and closed, you can't. Well, I guess. Um, omega-3. The chicken that laid the egg ate something that contained omega-3 fatty acids, but that does not guarantee a significant amount of that acid made its way into the egg. Okay. Cage-free. The birds that laid these eggs weren't kept in cages, but that doesn't mean they ever went outside or weren't crammed into an overpopulated barn. Fertile. These chickens... Well, I can't use the word that they have here. Did did the nasty. Okay, all that means is there's... And there's no proven nutritional benefit to this. Okay, so yes, we know the chickens are fertile. So those things don't mean a whole lot. Now, these are the egg words that could actually tell you something about the egg. Um, free range. Um, and, 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 and keep in mind, this is different from cage-free. Cage-free was the other one. It didn't mean much, but free range, according to certifiedhumane.org, the USDA's requirement for free range is outdoor access or access to the outdoors. In some cases, this can mean access only through a pop hole with no full body access to the outdoors and no minimum space requirement. If, however... Your eggs, your eggs come with the HFAC Certified Humane Free Range label. Certified Humane Free Range. That means the hens had access to two square feet of outside space per bird and were outside for at least six hours per day, weather permitting. Uh, pasture raised, uh, our friend Mac said this is the one she pays attention to. Similar to free range, there is no strict legal definition of this term, but the HFAC Certified Humane Pasture Raised requirement is very precise. If you see this label, it means there were no more than 1,000 birds per 2.5 acres, and that's 108 square feet per bird, and that the fields they lived in were rotated. According to CertifiedHumane.org, the hens must be outdoors year-round with mobile or fixed housing where the hens can go inside at night to protect themselves from predators or for up to two weeks out of the year due only to very inclement weather. Uh, If it says pesticide-free, pesticides weren't used to grow the food the chickens eat. Um... If it says vegetarian, this is interesting, Peggy. If it says vegetarian, the chickens did not eat any meat, mm-hmm. but this means they did not eat any worms, which means they were not pe- they were not pecking around outside in the dirt. So, and then uh, no antibiotics. Uh, according to the Atlantic, this labeling term means that farmers use no antibiotics in the hens' feed or water during growing periods, or while hens are laying the eggs. Do your research. Yeah, and know. and then they talk about organic as well. Uh, look at the the story. Uh, we've got the link there, and you might you might find it interesting. All right, before uh, we uh, get to Rick DeMaio, uh, as I mentioned, Doug Tallamy's on in two weeks. But next week, we're doing a very interesting thing. Uh, we're going to be talking to the artist who put together something called the Plastic Bag Store. 
and it's an installation that's going to be in Chicago between January 20th and the 30th. Um, and it's part of the Chicago International Puppet Theater Festival. And what? And you can't believe this. We'll we'll be talking next week, and I'll show a, a, a small, a short video about this. She took plastic products and she created a store out of them. But everything in the store is made of plastic, and constructed in a way very cleverly done. Um, and it's a comment, or commentary, on the uh, how we're awash in plastics. And yeah. we'll also talk about the puppet festival which is, uh, I guess, the uh, we're trying to make uh, Chicago the puppet uh, capital of the world, which is interesting. There's going to be more than 100 performances at dozens of venues across Chicago, um, all kinds. And as was pointed out to me, not necessarily for kids. Uh, yeah. Puppets well, you, does... Go ahead. You remember that one performance you and I went to that had the shadow puppets? years ago i'm trying to it was, re- a, gar- it was a gardening one and it was all oh, shadow okay. puppets behind the screen yeah with the gardening because there's a picture yes. of you with the puppets. yes yes i remember that that was at the the chopin theater yeah that was uh and i don't remember the the name of the uh yeah look effort. it up yeah yeah uh, all right so that uh, was puppets not you know not hand puppets like Garfield Goose. Yeah, it was, it was shadow puppets. So and it was very clever. Puppetry, yeah. And and a lot of this is, is is also very interesting, very clever. We'll talk about it next week on the show. And then in two weeks, Doug Tallamy is back and we'll discuss the uh, Belbo Prairie situation. All right. We need to get to Rick DeMaio um, for the first time in many weeks. So we'll see what he has to say. <laughs> Please stick around. From spring seed and soil treatments to summer foliar feeding to fall stubble digesters, Blazing Star provides microbial tools from Tinyo Biologicals for natural and organic farmers. They have solutions for home gardeners, too. And Blazing Star also offers agroecological education and consulting, especially for permaculture work in Zones 4 and 5. Learn more about these great folks and great techniques at blazing-star.com. Oh, there's Rick. There We're he looking is. at his closet doors. Yeah, that's okay. Let's oh, get I'm here. Uh, I'm here. Hey, okay. happy new year. Yeah. Happy New Year. Merry Christmas. Um, happy Kwanzaa, Bonapasta, Bon Natale. Happy Solstice. What's that pig? Happy Solstice. Um, yeah, that's right. And we've added thirty, what about twenty three minutes of sunlight. Have we really? Wow. Woo-hoo! So so good good news all the way around, right? Fantastic. Yeah. Um, Sorry, I'm just pulling out my hair here. But I, I'll tell you, the bad news is looking outside and seeing the glaze on the sidewalks yeah. right now. Oh, yeah. 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 yeah you know what? Um, reflecting nicely off of it. Yeah. Some of the trees do have a little bit of that glisten on it. But I have to say, this is, I think, the worst um, freezing precipitation we've, uh, event around here that we've had, I think, since the winter of 2014 when we had you know, like basically Arctic air over us for about almost a week. And then we had some rain move in. And even though, you know, asphalt and concrete, um, you know, can kind of warm up pretty quickly sometimes. It, it showed that when the ground just gets super cold, it just takes a long time for it to warm up. Yeah. Um, and this almost could have went down as probably, um, I think, a freezing rain advisory. 
Uh, the weather service did, I think, an excellent job. They got the winter weather advisory out almost 36 hours in advance. But again, you know, people, they look at the word winter weather advisory and they hear, okay, we're going to have winter weather. But they don't really know what that means because no one's specifically reading the information. So they go out in the bout, they do their chores, and then it gets cloudy. And they're looking at their car thermometer, and the air temperature says, you know, 32 degrees, 33. And then it starts to sprinkle, not knowing that the ground temperature is probably like 25. Um, <clears throat> and you end up getting, you know, icy conditions, especially it started out sunny yesterday. It's a Saturday. It was the first kind of normal Saturday in like three weeks. And everybody was out in the bow. Um, and I have never seen so many accidents pop up on the Chicago um, traffic report yesterday afternoon between about two o'clock and about six o'clock. I was actually supposed to go downtown to the House of Blues uh, to see a show, and I canceled because A, I wasn't feeling well, and B, I wasn't planning on going outside in that kind of weather. Uh, but we had two different periods of precipitation. We had drizzle in the beginning. Um, and then we had the freezing rain um, on top of that, which occurred between like about seven o'clock and 10 o'clock last night. Uh, but again, I think the thing that really um, made this much worse is the snow that we had last Saturday on New Year's Day started out wet. Um, the ground temperature was warm due to the fact that the wind was off the lake and the lake water temperature was still like 41 or 42 degrees, mm -hmm. um, which is, you know, almost five degrees above normal. And that first four or five hours of snow um, came down, melted. We had a lot of slush underneath the snow. And then when the dry snow occurred, um, it kind of insulated it and allowed it to basically remain as slush until it got really cold and then it froze. So you literally had sidewalks that were not plowed or shoveled, and people should have done that even with three or four inches of snow. Alleyways are horrible. Uh, the main streets did okay yesterday. But still, a lot of your, you know, minor highways, you know, a lot of accidents, people just driving mm -hmm. too slow or too fast, not slow enough. Um, but again, that that layer of snow that compacted in the ice um, and then the two days prior to that of temperatures basically in the teens and even below zero, I think really added to the uh, ability for the concrete and the asphalt, particularly in the um, alleyways, to retain their coldness. Um, so when the weather service puts out a winter weather advisory, they have all this language that I think people don't read, but you almost have to take it one step further, which is not easy to do because then you have to, you have to kind of like plan on all these scientific things happening and then the impacts happening and then you go check, we got it right. Um, but this almost could have been, you know, put down in the books as a freezing rain event. And the problem now is that this is the warmest we're going to be all day. Yeah. Temperatures are already yeah. falling into the teens it's 15 at rockford at 10 at freeport wow. oh, and boy. yeah four or five yeah. hours ago yeah. it was 33 degrees and now it's 27 the, the and if tweet this morning tweet from, from, uh, from uh, national weather service national weather nwr service, chicago, chicago, chicago says, says sorry i get a really bad echo as a reminder any surface that hasn't been salted such as sidewalks driveways and parking lots remain slippery temperatures will be falling throughout the day so the ice isn't going to melt away says the national weather service yeah, and, and even though the sun is out right now, um, if you if, even if your car is like directed the opposite way, way from the sun, um, whatever mm -hmm. ice you have on it now is only going to get harder, and we're only going to be in the teens tomorrow. So um, you're gonna you're gonna have a lot of slip and falls uh, wow. over the next couple wow. of days. I'm surprised, Mike, that 
you know, your your show isn't sponsored by one of those, you know, law offices that <laughs> that specialize. You know, you, you you could you could invite Dewey Cheatham and Howe on board today. I think they do a really good job. But um, wow. yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm looking again at the NWS Chicago uh, tweets. They've got a great loop from College of DuPage with the freezing drizzle on the camera from yesterday. Yeah, it was so amazing. Twitter, all of the, check out NWS Chicago. Yeah, all of the webcams. I was looking at them yesterday, and you go to windy.com. It's got a great list of webcams. All the webcams that were pointed to the south. Um, all had completely iced over, you know, by about uh, three or four o'clock in the afternoon. Um, and again, you know, it looked like this yesterday morning up until about 10 o'clock yeah. and then it clouded over, uh, a flood of moisture came in. It's now a, you know, a freezing rain event east of us across the Northeast, uh, where they just had snow, two different snow events last week. So, um, Arctic air does, does very, very funny things to the weather. And um, we're going to get right back into it in the next couple of hours, as Peg was alluding to the temperatures. Yeah. It is wow. January, though. It is. It is. And, and the one thing uh, that I'm grateful for, as I uh, wrote to you, that we got even four inches of snow yeah. to, to oh, cover, yeah. cover the ground. I mean, it doesn't help the sidewalks because, as you said, if you didn't get your sidewalk shoveled last week, it is a mess right now. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. But the plants are being protected by even that uh, small cover, the small layer of snow, um, which which would help. Otherwise, if they were exposed in this uh, weather, be a lot of plant mortality. Yeah, I'm sure. And um, and if people are like wanting to know when this stuff is going to melt away naturally, um, probably not until maybe Tuesday night when temperatures get close to freezing. But for sure. Uh, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, we'll be in the mid to upper 30s. So most of the snow that we have out there right now um, is probably going to melt by Friday. Um, piles, obviously, will still be around because there's obviously some water content in them. Uh, but again, uh, the lack of moisture. We just have been in this northwest flow, so it's been a very dry yeah. pattern. We're still um, in a stay very much. Yeah, yeah. I, I have not looked at what the uh, – the indication is for where we are from a from a drought standpoint, uh, but I do know for sure that um, we can use a little bit of moisture. Snow would be nice because it is January, uh, and I want to do some cross country skiing. But you know, this time last year we were complaining about no snow, and we ended up getting forty inches in about four weeks. So be careful what you wish for, right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, it was your fault. Okay. <laughs> it was my fault. <laughs> Absolutely. And it, which takes us with this ice uh, uh, on so many surfaces now, the idea of, of putting all this salt down. Um, yeah. And you sent a, a very interesting article, and I got had one from come from a, uh, a viewer uh, several weeks ago, and, and uh, I, I hung on to that. Um, but the New York Times uh, writes here, where, where's these numbers? It is... Um, uh, salt has been used to de-ice roads in the U.S. since the 1930s, and its use across the country has tripled in the past yeah. 50 years. More than oh, yeah. 20 million metric tons of salt yeah. are poured on U.S. roads each winter, according to an estimate by the Cary Institute of Ecosystem Studies in New York. Um, and And what that's doing is it's having environmental impact. Um, yeah, and I, and I think part of the reason also is that we have a lot more melt-off of, of salt throughout the, the course of the winter. Um, 
I remember, you know, some students of mine years ago were doing some projects when I was teaching high school level, and um, they were noticing that because we were getting these, you know, rather um, frequent melt-offs, the salt, instead of it either evaporating or just decomposing or maybe going down, you know, and becoming part of, you know, going into sewers or maybe into, you know, land masses or things like that, uh, was running off much more quickly um, into rivers and streams. And they were actually doing pH levels of rivers and streams after we had these melt-offs and you see these rapid rises uh, of salt content because no longer was the salt remaining in the ground. It was running off into the rivers and streams. Now, it's still going someplace, but the bottom line is, you know, I was just finished walking jacks just a short time ago, and some guy was throwing out all those white pellets, and I'm like, I think you got enough. <laughs> but he was like, I have to salt. Um, and it, it's funny because I remember when um, I was a, a condo manager, um, I was on the board, and our attorney that we have, you know, represented us said, it's better if at times you don't salt or shovel at all, because if you do it the wrong way, people can sue you for doing it the improper way, as opposed to if you didn't do it at all, then the, then the, the, the responsibility is on the person for knowing how to navigate through a slippery sidewalk, which I thought was kind of odd. Uh, but yeah, I think you just have a lot more people now, you know, obviously people want to have the ability to go out and about as opposed to maybe staying inside. And because of that, you end up having a lot more, you know, roads and sidewalks treated. It is interesting to know if you go up to um, Wisconsin, um, they're doing a much better job up there, Mike. And I know that we, are, we had kind of talked about this, but I remember when I first got to Madison in 1983, they didn't use any salt. Um, it was a combination of a bunch of different liquids um, mm-hmm. and also sand. And, and it, you know, it didn't make the roads look nice. Everything was brown and red. But part of it was because the runoff was really getting into the, uh, the water system and eventually into the aquifers and eventually into the farms. And they had so much problems already with Lake Mendota having these massive algae blooms because of different chemicals that the farmers were using. So they were trying to figure out how to get ahead of the problem um, because a problem existed. And that's usually what you do as a, as a, as a policymaker or a scientist um, if a problem exists, then you attach, you know, some sort of laws or legislation uh, to fix it. And if not, you just keep doing what you're doing and you wait until something bad happens. But, yeah, they've been they were doing that in, in Wisconsin and in Madison a long time ago. And I, also, I know they also do it out by um, uh, Northwest Illinois, Eagle Ridge, Galena, Stockton. They use a lot of that spreading of sand and other types of um, or the pre-tree. Um, yeah, pre-treat to, to keep you from just throwing down a ton of salt. Well, um, yeah. And the, good thing, and the good thing real quickly is airlines are way ahead of the game of, of using different types of fluids that do not pollute. Uh, and they also have different ways, and I teach this in my operations class, different ways of de-icing airplanes that is much more friendlier to the environment than it was years ago. And again, part of that is because you have such a huge volume of airplanes being de-iced at O'Hare, they make sure that they're de-iced in a certain place and using certain types of chemicals that are not harmful to the environment. So I always say, if you want to know, learn how to do things right, go to an airport or an airline, and they'll tell you how to do it. Yeah, and this uh, article... Except for one, air, one airport in particular, but... Oh, <laughs> uh, you're, our, our nemesis now? 
is is Rockford that what? International. Yeah, yeah. Right. Oh, Rockford. Yeah. Where you know, you know our our issue with Rockford at the moment, but yep. Um, this article in uh, uh, Wisconsin Public Radio uh, um, that uh, Andrew Fedorowski sent to me. Um, it tells us that more than 1 million metric tons of salt is flowing into Lake Michigan each year. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, while the, the, now the lake salinity is low, um, the amount of chloride is close to 15 milligrams per liter. That level has increased over the last 200 years from about one to two milligrams per liter in the 1800s. Yeah. And, Levels of 200, 250 milligrams per liter have been known to affect the taste of drinking water and harm freshwater organisms. Now, we're not close to 250 yet, at, but what we're seeing is it the uptick of right. the salinity. Yeah, going up. um, and in the uh, New York Times article, it, it's affecting well water uh, a lot yeah. more. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Apparently... Yeah, that some wells reached levels as high as 860 milligrams per liter. You know what wow. the the federal and state recommendations are that uh, your uh, uh, sodium level not go above 20 per liter for people on very low sodium diets and 270 milligrams per liter for people on moderately restricted sodium diets. Uh, diets but we're seeing 860 milligrams per liter in some wells. It's crazy. And that's why they changed the name of the pretzels, Mr. Salty, to just pretzels. Okay. That's it. You know what? <laughs> Good night, I, everybody. I distinctly, I distinctly remember um, the first year when I was in college up at uh, Oswego, um, and a friend of mine who lived in, um, and I'll keep this story short because then we got a bunch of other things to talk about, yeah. uh, lived in Lake Placid. And him and, his, him and his dad were going back to his house to pick up some stuff. He goes, he goes, Ricky, do you want to come with me, to, you know, to my home in Lake Placid? Um, I'm like, sure. A, it's Lake Placid. B, they just had the Olympics there in 1980. Um, and C, I've never seen that part of New York State. And I distinctly remember driving along Route 3, which goes from uh, Oswego to Watertown to Fort Drum through Tupper Lake, Saranat Lake to Lake Placid. It goes right through the areas where all those lakes were highly impacted by acid rain. And it broke my heart to see so many signs that had the skull and crossbones on it and said, this lake is not recommended for swimming or your your drinking of any water from like animals or things like that. Um, And that's when acid rain in the late, Mm. mid to late seventies was at its highest. And I thought to myself, oh my God, I, I can't believe I'm actually seeing these signs that these lakes are dead, literally dead. But it wasn't so much because of the acid rain is because the type of rock that lined the bottom of the lakes um, in that area of New York State did not have the buffering capacity to break down some of the acid. So it was literally like the lakes already were behind Mm -hmm. uh, the ability to buffer the acid. And when the acid went in there, they just became acidified. And then obviously we got wise, we got smart, and we started to decrease the amount of sulfur that came out of the, the, the smokestacks in places like Ohio and parts of Western New York. Um, and the lakes returned back to normal within about five to 10 years. But I still remember, Mike and Pig, seeing those signs and going, my God, is anybody doing anything about this? And it took a while. It took almost 
10 years to ruin him and 10 years to get him back. And that was 20 years of, you know, nature being cheated by good old human beings. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You mentioned some of the stuff and, and I, I want to get to uh, our, our weather here, but very yeah. briefly, yeah. Um, I wanted to talk um, about that crazy situation in Colorado where we had those towns burn down and then get covered with snow. What, uh, what whiplash for those folks? Well, first off, having, you know, temperatures in the 50s and 60s and 50 mile an hour winds on a Monday and having a foot of snow on a Tuesday is very normal in that part of the United States. It happens all the time. It's called downslope warming at ahead of a deep low pressure. And then once the low goes south and the Arctic high builds south, uh, you have northeast winds and you have upslope winds. That's the best way to produce heavy snow on the front range of the Rockies. So that kind of stuff has been going on for years. There's nothing climactically extreme about that. The events prior to it, and it's twofold, uh, the fact that they were in just a phenomenally dry period due to the really fast-moving jet stream across the Pacific Northwest and Northern Rockies caused by the incredibly large pool of warm water over the North Pacific. So there is a climate change component to this. Um but the fact that that part of northern Colorado was so incredibly dry and getting into a period of the year where the evaporation can increase. In other words, during the summertime, when you have more water vapor, you're probably not going to dry out as much. When you get into autumn and you have more of these downslope winds and you get into cooler nights, you can dry things out uh, much more efficiently. So the grassland of that part of Colorado, it was already phenomenally dry. The fact that you had winds of 80 to 90 miles per hour was not unusual. Even some gusts over 110. I've seen that several times before. But what they're trying to still figure out is, A, what caused the fire, um, and B, why did so many homes burn so fast? Now, if you go back to that area 30 years ago, None of those homes were there. The population right. of the Boulder metropolitan area is now 310,000. Back in 1950, it was 19,000. So the population in that area has just exploded. But again, when you look at where those homes were built, we're building, and this is the human fault here. This is the human component. It's important to note because if you look at a photograph of those homes that were burnt, and you compare that to a photograph of the homes that were burnt in California, Mike and Peg, you put them side by side, you can't tell the difference. They're exactly the same. Humans are building way too close, way too far into what's called the urban wildlife interface. And I almost like to call it the wildlife urban interface because the wildlife was there first. Yes. But it's our fault. It's our fault for building too close to the mountains. Now, granted, these homes weren't up against the mountains, but they're up against a grassland. And if I'm living in that area and I'm looking to the west and all I see between me and the foothills is nothing but grass and it's really windy, I'm getting nervous. So what they really need to do is they need to figure out how to, how to keep fires, not from starting because they're going to start, but how to keep fires from moving so fast in an area that is so prone to high winds and dry conditions. And on a side note, uh, one of my college classmates, Patrick Dills, lost his home. Now, I'm not blaming him, but he moved into that area about 20 years ago. He's a scientist, meteor meteor 
meteorologists, but a scientist, as they call them out there, um, in NCAR. And I have not heard from him. I've emailed him. I've called him. Uh, but I'm sure he's got other things to worry about. But the fact that they are still allowing people to build in those areas and have the houses so close together without any protective means between the edge of the homes and the mountains and the grassland, that's human's fault and, and, or human, human nature um, is at fault. And we got to figure out how to fix that, not only in California, not only in Montana, not only in Colorado. Uh, but again, do those houses have metal roofs? Probably not. But I don't know if metal roofs would have held in this, helped in this situation. Yeah. It's tragic in all, in all senses of the word. All right. Um, let's look at, uh, you know, uh, you, you sent me uh, information about the, uh, the year in climate news from the Times and going over that there are so many stories that yeah. it, it's, it's mind boggling. You, 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 to be and reminded. Those are only the biggest ones by right, month. Right. If you, it's just incredible what kind of changes we're going through here. And it involves the Antarctic and it and, involves. And you know what? That, that, that compilation of, of stories, Mike and Peg, doesn't include the Category 5 that hit the Philippines in the middle of December. Yeah. That was, that was a Category 5 typhoon, the strongest all year. Now, they can get Cat 3s and 4s even into December, but a Cat 5. And yeah. again, the reason why, and I, and I found this interesting, the reason, the reason why the Colorado fires came out of the news cycle nationally so fast was no one died. Think about that. It was like literally out of the news cycle within three days. No one died. If you would have had 60 people died, you would have reporters out there. Why did this happen? How did this happen? Think about that. If that would have happened at night, that happened in the middle of the day on a Saturday. No, no, it was on a Thursday. And everybody said, there's the fire. We need to leave. But if that would have happened at night, like what happened in California, remember you had 80 people in California die Yeah. in that, in that fire. And still... You know, Biden is ridiculed on the Fox News website for saying that climate change is supercharging wildfires. Um, it happened on Trump's watch. It's happening on Biden's watch. And it's going to happen on the next president's watch until we figure out how to protect humans that are ready in the way of these extreme events. So each time we talk about extreme weather events, the human component is making these events so much more impactful. Climate change is making them worse. Humans are making them more impactful. That's okay. the best way to put it into a nutshell. So uh, we'll, whenever we can, bring up some of those stories as as they oh, yeah. as we get a chance. I there's just I was kind of overwhelmed by that 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 article. Uh, so let's let's look at uh, uh, a map of uh, our area. This is happening today. This is the six a.m. I think. Uh, yeah. This now. This is this is a forecast for temperatures. Sun. Yeah. This is a forecast for temperatures at six a.m. and it's basically right on because um, I think at six a.m. this morning we were right around thirty degrees, and then you can see that pink to the north and west. That's moving in our direction. So if you go to the next map, the next map is going to be a forecast that's for noon. noon, right? And that shows that temperatures pretty much within the next two hours are going to be down close to about 10 to 15. And again, it's already 15 in Rockford. The only thing that's yeah. going to keep us warm here is the fact that the urban heat island tends to allow the temperature to warm up somewhat. But if you go to the next map, which I think is for 6 p.m., yeah. um, we're, we're back in the single digits to the north and west. So anything that is shiny out there right now <laughs> is going to get shinier and slippery 
more slippery, I guess is a better way of looking at it, um, as the day goes on. Yeah, it's gone down. I'm just checking my phone apps. It's gone down seven degrees since the show started. Yeah. Holy smoke. Yeah. And and that's probably and that's probably your 10 a.m. temperature as well, Peg. So we're going to get a little clipper system through here tonight. Uh, That'll lay down maybe a half inch, an inch of very, very fluffy snow, which will make conditions even worse in some areas tomorrow. I'm telling you, there's going to be a lot of slipping falls. Yeah. So the 15 to 25 you see there is already happening. Uh, Overnight low down about 5 to 10 above. Tomorrow, uh, a little bit of snow in the morning with uh, temperatures probably in the teens much of the day. And then you can see early morning, uh, Monday night into Tuesday, and they finally figured out that they have to put night in on the bottom because they tried all these different ways of, like, moving the graphic off to the right and people going, that's for Monday night into Tuesday. Now they just put in Monday night, which is good. Yeah, um, I, I'm so glad they did that because I had always found that confusing. Uh, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And then even on certain TV stations, you'll see that number on the bottom and people go, is that for that morning or that night? <laughs> yep, I've always wondered then, about that. To me, so. to me, if you have to explain a graphic, it's not a good graphic, all right? <laughs> um, right? Yep. right? So the good news is we begin the warm-up Tuesday with sunshine, but I think that 26 is probably a little bit low. I think we may actually be close to 30 by late Tuesday night. And the good news is Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, all three of those days, uh, mid to upper 30s. Now we cool off quite a bit next Saturday and Sunday, but the interesting thing about it is by next week, it's going to be January 15th. That's the midpoint of climatological winter. And if you're telling me that the midpoint of climatological winter, we're only going to have one day of below zero weather and four and a half inches of snow, I'll take it. Yeah, uh, and uh, let me show you this because you 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 sent this also. This was an interesting phenomenon um, with the pancake ice on Lake Michigan. Yeah, now this was from yesterday morning, and the reason why we had pancake ice, two reasons. A, it got cold, but B, there was no wind. So when you get no wind and you can get that sloshing back and forth, you'll get that pancake ice. And I think the next picture in there – shows it i think a little bit later in the afternoon i don't know if i said that I, to you no you didn't it, it was it at least up here it was gone yeah and and what happened is the ice didn't get moved away it just got mixed up so the temperature in the top four or five inches was probably of the water like maybe 32.5 but below that it was probably about 34 35 so what happens is when you get a lot of wind you mix it up and then literally the pancake ice gets you know just take ice and put it in water and then when you slush it up enough, it melts. So the ice basically went back to being water. The good thing, though, is the lake is cooling down. And we need that because we need the pancake ice to now get, when it reforms, which it won't, but we need it to get blown up against the shoreline. And when that happens, you'll get these mounds of slush. I know, Peg, you've seen that quite a bit up along the lakefront where you live. And once you get that layer of pancake ice, into these kind of crustaceous, weird mountains of, I don't know what you call it after a while, um, that buffers the beaches and protects them from waves, yeah. uh, which obviously we know uh, erodes the lakefront. So the good news is the lakes are open. We're cooling things down. We've probably lost about another four or five inches off the lake due to the fact that we've been cold. We've had lake effect snow over a foot and a half over in Michigan and quite a bit up north. Uh, but we still need the pancake ice to develop. We need to have northeast winds pushing on shore because the south winds yesterday pushed it back out into the lake. 
and clearly uh, that got rid of all the pancake guys. So this time of the year, pancake guys is our friend. Okay. Right? We want to see more of that because when you do get that, um, it protects the shoreline quite a bit. But Mike and Peg, I don't see anything like that happen anytime soon. And the result is this forecast here, which is a seven-day forecast for snow. There's nothing coming at us, nothing. Outside of a little bit of snow uh, tonight into tomorrow, um, nothing. And the thing about it also is the winds are going to be primarily out of the west. So even if there was any pancake ice that would develop, it would end up being pushed out into the lake. So we need a couple of big days of cold Arctic highs, northeast winds, which would put that ice along the shoreline, and it would buffer our beaches from whatever storms could still be developing during the course of the of the winter. The only thing that's good right now is the lake is down almost two feet, believe it or not, two wow. feet from where it was two years ago. If you remember that yeah. big storm we had in January 2020, uh, when we had all that flooding along the lakefront, uh, the good news is that the lake is down quite a bit. So even if we don't get ice right now in the next week or two, we have a little bit of help. So you there's can see a lot the- of different ways that you can look at the impacts of weather. Yeah, I was just going to say, we're not getting it, but Michigan is. So, Oh, yeah. There's you know, easily a foot and a half on the ground. Uh, but again, this is lake effect snow. It's fluffy, yeah. so it'll evaporate pretty quickly. But uh, by and large, uh, 6 to 10 um, day outlook temperature-wise. Um, and the good thing now is that the Climate Prediction Center is issuing these not once a week, but now every day. Um, hmm. So it's a really great tool that they've gotten um, – you know, I think they, they, they've, they've gotten to the year 2022. They were still like in the 1990s. So it shows a large area of warming all the way from Montana. And my God, the people up in eastern Montana and the Dakotas and Minnesota, they've been really hit hard. Super cold weather over the last couple of weeks. Um, but all that is going to um, um, moderate somewhat. So temperatures basically near normal we'll have a couple of days of above normal and a couple of days below normal. And even the 8 to 14 day shows us to be, even though we're going to get colder around here, between about the 18th or 20th of January, the last couple of days, the models have been trending away from bringing the polar vortex that far south. Actually, the weather that we had last week was what we call a stretched out or a split polar vortex. That's what that's one of the reasons why we got that cold. Uh, but a real large area of polar vortex weather um, – is not expected to come down here anytime soon. So bottom line, not much in the way of snow and not much in the way of extreme Arctic cold. Um, and whatever's out there right now is going to be here for the next 36 to 48 hours. So that's what we get. So, all right. And, and, but by the end of the week, which <laughs> can't come soon enough for the, uh, all the ice glaze out there now, we'll have temperatures above freezing, but then. Oh yeah. And, but, but, by Wednesday. Yeah, and but but you don't see that because uh, earlier, yeah, you were saying you, you thought we, we were going to get hammered by the vortex, but that looks like it's going to moderate a little bit, right? It 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 you know it still looks like it's going to be just to the north of us, and when it's still kind of just to the north of us, <clears throat> you always kind of like in the back of your mind, when is it going to begin to push southward? And the thing about it is the lakes are still wide open, so when you do get a, a polar vortex come down here, there's going to be a lot of lake effect snow. Um, which is always kind of fun to watch and fun to forecast. But yeah, no big, no big storms anytime soon. The pattern just doesn't uh, doesn't bode well for that. Okay, Paul. All right, Rick. Uh, great seeing you again, and um, happy New Year Welcome again. Back. And let, let's see what happens in twenty twenty two. 
always long, a long way to go. Uh, yeah, it, it, it never ceases to amaze me how we always have things to talk about. But um, yeah. I think we got a lot, through a lot today. Okay, peace, love, and happiness. See you guys. All right, take care, Rick. There we go. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yes. Uh, I want to thank all of our guests on the show today, uh, Kathleen Norris Frenzel and Mary-Kate Mackey. Uh, product placement. Where's the product placement? Okay. Um, Rick DeMaio, meteorologist. Gosh, it's been a long time since we talked to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, thanks to my Kathleen uh, doing a lot of work. She's working on a new website. Can't wait to, to unveil it. So it's going to be coming out very soon. Thanks to Legata the Cat and Basil the Dog. Uh, Happy New Year again, everybody. Until next time, go green or... Go home. Uh, Stadler? Yeah, what? Is that it? Yes, it's over. How'd you like it? I don't know. I slept through the whole thing. Well, you didn't miss much. (laughs) 